In August 2008, Rachel Cubitt pushed a wheeled cart down the hallway of the Fines Department in the York Archaeological Trust. It carried a newly exhumed block of damp soil. Cubitt was part of an archaeology team excavating a site near the University of York in rural Great Britain. They'd recently come across a variety of artifacts and remains, and Cubitt was tasked with cleaning and evaluating the specimen in her cart. It was a human skull, still half-buried face-first in the mud. They'd estimated that it dated back to the Iron Age about 2,600 years ago. When Cubitt arrived in her lab, she began the painstaking process of cleaning the artifact. She cleared soil from the crevices of the skull and the vertebrae still attached to it. When she removed the skull from the mud, she found that it included an intact jawbone. But the real discovery came when she finally looked inside the skull. As she expected, Cubitt observed more soil on the interior of the cranium, but she also saw something else, vivid yellow clumps beneath all the dirt. Cubitt was among the first to ever lay eyes on such a well-preserved human organ that had been underground for thousands of years, the Heslington Brain. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Heslington Brain, an ancient human brain somehow preserved underground for 2,600 years. This episode will cover the brain's discovery and explore what some of the artifacts uncovered nearby might tell us about the brain's history and origin. Then we'll try to determine how the owner of the Heslington brain died. Next episode, we'll discuss the science behind decomposition and wonder how such sensitive tissue might have survived thousands of years underground. As it turns out, the key to this unique organ's preservation could bring researchers closer to a cure for some of the world's most devastating neurological diseases. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. The brain that Cupid discovered within the Iron Age cranium in 2008 made international news. Experts and laypeople alike puzzled over the strange find in rural Great Britain. They wanted to know how such delicate matter survived for over 2,500 years. Suddenly, all eyes were on a relatively small University of York archaeological dig. It took place on the eastern side of Heslington Village, giving the brain the moniker Heslington Brain. The University of York commissioned the dig in 2003, five years earlier. Prior to its start, the area was used for agricultural purposes, and the surrounding grounds reflected that. Green grass, blue skies, and rolling hills. Up to 20 acres were stripped of their pastures to allow for the excavation. Once work began, a team of archaeologists from the York Archaeological Trust began uncovering ancient relics and other signs of human habitation, all of which dated from the Bronze Age through the Middle Iron Age, from roughly 2100 BCE to 150 BCE. There were also less definitive indications of human life that dated all the way back to the Mesolithic and Neolithic periods, from around 10,000 BCE to 2,900 BCE. Each uncovered item revealed something new about ancient human life. Evidence of prehistoric agricultural plots, residential structures, and walled walkways were all carefully excavated and dated. Richard Hall, director of archaeology at the York Archaeological Trust, theorized that the walls surrounding the walkways could have been designed to contain cattle as they were driven to new fields. Members of the dig also found that different areas of the settlement were separated by ditches. These man-made waterways likely guided rainwater and groundwater from underground springs out of the habitation area and into the fields. Archaeologists discovered two wells with carefully maintained wicker lining. The shallow, man-made pond could have been used for water storage. The home's circular plans indicated that they were likely once roundhouses, a common habitation with a cone-shaped thatched roof, a popular dwelling from the Celtic tribes of the Iron Age. But the most intriguing discoveries were found south of what the team considered to be the residential area. There, they uncovered dozens of deep pits. Some ancient civilizations dug circular holes straight into the ground. They didn't resemble the more shallow irrigation channels that were much longer than they were wide. As far as archaeologists could tell, these simpler cavities were not dug in service of the settlement's survival. The pits, some thought, must have existed for a ritualistic or ceremonial purpose. Whatever culture made these holes, they were marked with a stake, perhaps as a warning of the peril nearby. It's also possible that the stakes indicated the sacredness of the area a gentle warning to tread lightly. 
The most common find at the bottom of these holes were scorched pieces of stone native to the area, but some of the contents were more unusual. Archaeologists found the decapitated corpse of a red deer in one of the oldest pits. The most chilling and significant find, however, had to be the dirty human skull that contained the Heslington brain. The back of the cranium emerged from the soil first. It had been buried face down. It was the first sign of human remains anywhere on the site, and the archaeologists never found the rest of the body. When the field team made the discovery in August 2008, they recorded the find as it was removed, still encased in the surrounding soil. But the delicate process of removing the brain from the skull would be performed in the lab where they could properly handle the specimen without damaging it. Back at the York Archaeological Trust, the task would fall to the hands of Rachel Cubitt in the finds laboratory. After the initial shock of discovering something more than just soil inside the cranial cavity, Cubitt remembered a lecture about the remote possibility of discovering preserved prehistoric brain matter. She immediately placed the specimen into refrigeration and started making phone calls. The gravity of the discovery didn't escape her. Preserved cerebral matter had been found before, but rarely. In a few instances, scientists have discovered shriveled bits of brain tissue inside some of Egypt's embalmed mummies. One particularly exciting moment occurred during a CT scan of a 1,700-year-old female mummy. It revealed that although most of the organs in her abdomen had been removed, her brain remained unscathed. In another discovery, a team of researchers found a 5,300-year-old frozen mummy in the Alps. His icy brain tissue revealed details about how he died. Similarly, the remains of 8,000-year-old Native Americans were found in the stagnant waters of a Florida peat bog. Their brains provided useful DNA data. But Cubitt already knew the brain in her lab's fridge was unique. Most other ancient brains had been accompanied by other ancient soft tissues and organs. Whatever had preserved the brain had preserved other parts of the body. But the skull discovered in the pit had no soft tissue. The cartilage, skin, muscle, eyes, hair, it had all decomposed, except for the brain. Postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Bradford, Sonia O'Connor, was one of many researchers puzzling over the Heslington brain's odd preservation. In regards to its survival, she said, it's particularly surprising because pathologists who deal with fresh dead bodies say the first organ to really deteriorate and to basically go to liquid is the brain. The brain's composition contributes to its fragile state after death. At about 75% water, brains are especially susceptible to a post-mortem process called autolysis, where enzymes begin collapsing the tissues. And it begins minutes after death. Under standard conditions, many of the organ's water-filled cells can burst in just one day. Even when bodies are kept refrigerated in a mortuary, the brain still cannot escape this process if enough time passes. But somehow, a brain inside a decapitated skull, buried for thousands of years in damp, sandy soil, survived. 
the Heslington brain didn't even smell like decomposition, and its consistency was relatively resilient, like the firmness and texture of tofu. Researchers were baffled. The authors of a major study on the brain, published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface, wrote, the preservation of human brain proteins at ambient temperature should not be possible for millennia in free nature. The experts said it wasn't possible. The Heslington brain, by its very existence, was a miracle. Coming up, what analysis reveals about how the brain might have ended up at the bottom of a pit. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After the Heslington brain was discovered in 2008, experts were astounded that the fragile tissue had survived. Something miraculous happened to preserve the Heslington brain for 2,600 years underneath damp soil near the University of York. The brain's survival baffled the scientists who examined it. Nobody understood why the cerebral tissue, but no other soft tissue, had escaped natural decomposition. Between August 2008 and October 2010, archaeologists at the University of York and other experts examined the brain using a variety of tools. As each of them uncovered new details, the brain's history and the mystery of its preservation were brought into sharper focus. Before technicians excavated the cerebral tissue from the cranium, they laser-scanned and photographed the skull in 2D and 3D. They then recorded the position of the brain matter inside the cranium via CAT scan and MRI. All this data was necessary so researchers could refer to the skull's original condition later because their process was about to become irreversible and downright gruesome. Like a brain surgery, scientists made a circular incision around the crown of the skull and then removed the top. The ancient remains were then treated to a modern autopsy. Before they removed the brain tissue itself, the scientists carefully set aside the remaining dirt and sediment for geochemical evaluation. Perhaps the nature of the soil could reveal something about the brain's survival. The dirt removed from the skull was consistent with soil found in the area. It contained very little organic matter. It also indicated that very little water had moved through the skull after it was buried. Scientists also found a notable lack of the waste products from decomposition. It was as if this human head had hardly degraded. And yet, out of all the soft tissue in the head, only the brain survived. From there, five major pieces of brain matter and several tiny brain particles were removed and gently cleaned with a silky paintbrush under a dribble of distilled water. Many ancient brains are left brittle from abrasive mummification techniques or radically altered by other preservation processes. Researchers found it remarkable that the surviving tissue retained the tight folds quintessential to the surface of human brains. 
In fact, they were even able to identify a few of the brain's lobes. They estimated that the tissue shrank to about 20% of its original size. It didn't have any discernible smell. In daylight, it appeared more pink or light brown than yellow. Through radiocarbon dating, the remains were determined to be from the early Iron Age, sometime between 673 and 482 BCE. That date made the Heslington brain the oldest preserved human brain ever discovered in Britain. Upon further analysis, researchers drew some conclusions about the brain's owner, who, for simplicity's sake, we'll call Hez. Hez's brain and skull told the story of where he came from and how he died. Using anthropological precedent, researchers determined the skull belonged to a male. Examination of wear and tear on the teeth indicated that Hez died between the age of 26 and 45, but experts postulated that he most likely passed away on the younger end of that spectrum. Based on the size and shape of the cranium, researchers suspected the victim didn't suffer from a birth defect or neurological disease at the time of his death. Hez was probably relatively healthy, at least from a neurological standpoint. After they completed their autopsy, the technicians set aside some of the brain tissue for DNA sequencing. The Heslington brain appeared to share DNA with individuals in present-day Tuscany, Turkey, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, and other countries located on the Arabian Peninsula. Researchers determined this by identifying the haplogroup. A haplogroup is a group of people who share a common ancestry. They are found by studying variations in DNA and identifying common genetic characteristics. Knowing Hezus's haplogroup might have helped scientists identify his descendants. But curiously, his haplogroup was relatively rare and has only been defined in the recent past, and it had never been recorded in Britain. There could be a few different explanations for this. The haplogroup and Hez's DNA weren't an exact match. The Heslington brain may belong to a haplogroup that no longer exists. Hez's descendants might have died out. Or, as Sonia O'Connor pointed out, Hez's specific haplogroup may only be rare because DNA technology is rather new. Others, like Hez, could emerge in Britain as more testing is recorded. It's also possible that the haplogroup was once present in the British DNA pool, but was erased due to a phenomenon called genetic drift. Genetic drift is the rise and fall of defining genetic traits in a population over the course of generations. These changes in the makeup of a genetic population are the result of chance events, such as a natural disaster that indiscriminately destroys an entire town. Genetic drift has the largest effect on smaller populations. To summarize, the Heslington brain may have belonged to a foreigner of Britain or to someone whose ancestors hadn't been on the island for long. He most likely had few descendants, or the descendants who possessed his specific gene variants were phased out due to random events. Assuming he's from elsewhere, it's impossible to know how Hez ended up on the present-day British Isle. But we can speculate based on what we know about travel during the Iron Age. At the time, migration into Britain from neighboring regions was common, as was invasion. 
but the lengthy trip from the present-day Middle East would be difficult to make. Over land, the journey would be rife with obstacles and dangers. Without extensive roads or reliable means of transport, it could take years. Hez most likely traveled by sea. By the time Hez traveled to Britain, there was already extensive maritime trade in the Mediterranean Sea and beyond. The ancient Greeks, Phoenicians, and Egyptians were all skilled sailors. Around 600 BCE, the pharaoh Necho II even sent an expedition to circumnavigate Africa. There's also evidence that some of these civilizations visited Britain during the time Hez most likely traveled there. Around 330 BCE, a Greek merchant named Pythias traveled to what is now Cornwall in present-day England. This isn't to say that Hez was with Pythias, but there were a number of ways for him to arrive in Britain by sea. As far as the evidence shows, the Heslington brain belonged to a healthy, young to middle-aged male. This male, or his ancestors, may have traveled across the continent or the sea to present-day Heslington and left behind very few, if any, descendants. We don't know if he planned to stay there or intended to return home, but we do know that he died in Heslington. But how did he die? Dr. Axel Petzold from University College London's Queen Square Institute of Neurology examined the Heslington brain in 2018. Petzold wrote, something cruel must have happened to this person. The skull shows signs of trauma, indicating that someone or something hit Hez hard on the head. The two vertebrae attached to the skull showed signs of trauma prior to death. This damage could have been caused by a hard hit to the neck or manual strangulation. However, the injury to the neck was bilaterally symmetrical, meaning it was the same on both sides. This detail made experts postulate that Hez was most likely hanged with a rope. The trauma from the noose broke Hez's neck. This injury probably killed Hez, but if it didn't, what happened next certainly did the trick. Hez's C2 vertebra showed nine fine horizontal nicks in the bone. These nicks resulted from the frontal neck flesh being cut lengthwise with a very thin, sharp tool, probably a knife. After Hez was hanged, he was decapitated. But it didn't happen in one swift blow. Because such a small knife was used, several cuts were necessary. Hopefully, Hez was no longer alive to feel such excruciating pain. The use of a small blade would have required immense force. Experts describe the cuts to be exacting, almost surgical in nature. Whoever performed the decapitation was confident and experienced. Archaeologists discovered very little blood or other organic material in their analysis of the soil surrounding the skull. This meant the head hadn't actively gushed blood when it was deposited into the pit. Which likely means that after laboriously removing Hez's head, someone allowed the blood to drain from the neck stump. It could have been held up high after decapitation to allow spectators to lay eyes on the grisly outcome. But the head wasn't allowed to drain for long. The brain's superior preservation indicates that Hez's head was deposited into the pit immediately following decapitation 
and drainage. The skull was discovered face down in the mud at the bottom of the pit, likely by design. It's possible that Hez wasn't dropped into the pit from ground level. More likely, someone climbed into the pit holding Hez's severed head. Then, they placed it deliberately face-first into the muck. Researchers speculate that almost no time was wasted before the pit was refilled. It's not clear why Hez's killers buried his head so soon, but by doing so, they ensured it would be well-preserved. If the head were exposed to the open air for long, putrefying bacteria would have entered the severed flesh and aided the decomposition of the brain tissue. Instead, the wound was sealed with a clay-like dirt. The depth of the pit was also an important factor in preservation. The temperature underground was cooler, which undoubtedly slowed decomposition. The unfortunate ancient owner of the Heslington brain was a healthy young man who died a horrible death at the hands of his fellow humans. But this was no typical murder. The intentional process of the death could hint at some kind of disturbing primeval ritual, possibly even a human sacrifice. Coming up, what kind of ancient ritual could have sentenced Hez to death? Now back to the story. The Heslington brain once belonged to a prehistoric, seemingly healthy young man who we're calling Hez. Around 2,600 years ago, somewhere outside an ancient settlement near modern-day Heslington in York, Hez was likely hanged and decapitated. His severed head was then immediately buried. It's clear how Hez died. Now to unpack the why. What circumstances put Hez's severed head at the bottom of a pit? Could that series of events unlock how the Heslington brain survived 2,600 years underground? During the Iron Age, the human head held powerful meaning in Europe. It could symbolize conception, sexuality, social standing, even authority. Decapitation was a common practice of the time, utilized almost exclusively on traitors and enemies. As a possible foreigner who looked different than the locals, Hez would have been considered an outsider. It's not known if Hez was a bloodthirsty invader or a peaceful visitor. But residents of Britain during the Iron Age, who were largely part of the Celtic culture, decapitated individuals for a variety of reasons. Beheadings were believed to be most prevalent as a method to glorify battle wins and to intimidate enemies. However, the actual removal of the head was just the beginning of this process. Celts collected the heads of their slain enemies and embalmed them in cedar or oil. They then put the embalmed trophies on display. Some experts think the heads were kept on the perimeter of settlements to make invaders think twice about entering. Others believe that warriors took personal ownership over their kills, hanging their enemies' heads off their horses as they rode away from battle, victorious. After preservation, the heads were kept on display in front of the fighters' residences. The craniums of bested adversaries lined the entrances of the greatest warriors' homes. The Celtic practice of embalming and displaying severed heads is mentioned in the records of ancient Greek historians Diodorus and Strabo. 
It's also supported by the archaeological discovery of preserved heads in France dating back to 2,500 years ago. Perhaps Hez's brain was preserved by the very same people who killed him. Maybe, but the Heslington brain showed no signs of oil preservation. Plus, as we discussed, the head was never displayed. In fact, the opposite is true. It was buried deep underground. Local Celts might have considered Hez an enemy, but given what we know about Celtic warriors, it appears he wasn't killed in battle. But residents of Britain in the Iron Age severed heads for another, even more disturbing reason, human sacrifice. While the metaphorical power of the human head during the Iron Age is not disputed, historians disagree about the frequency of human sacrifice. With thousands of years separating us and the events, it's difficult to differentiate between ceremonial human sacrifice and plain old murder. It's also important to note that the primary chroniclers of Celtic human sacrifice were ancient Greek and Roman academics, and both were known to hold grudges against their northern neighbors. In other words, their records should be analyzed with a healthy dose of skepticism. However, there is sufficient archaeological evidence and ancient records to indicate that while it may not have been a common practice, human sacrifice did occur in Iron Age Britain, and Hez may have been one of the unlucky victims. It appears that the Celts practiced human sacrifice in order to honor bodies of water that they considered holy. It may seem unusual to us, but severed heads and corpses became grisly indicators of sacred wetlands. These ancient societies also believed water sources such as wells could serve as a gateway into other worlds, even the spirit realm that their gods inhabited. So the sacrifices may have been more than just markers of the sacred. They may have been offerings to the gods Celts believed lived just beyond the water's surface. Celts could have served up human heads to their gods for a variety of reasons. If catastrophe struck a community, such as an epidemic, a natural disaster, or crop pestilence, a sacrifice could be a way to ask the gods for help. Disaster could also be interpreted as punishment from the gods for wrongdoing. A severed head, placed near a water source, could serve as an apology, meant to prompt a change in fortune. Or, if a community faced a big decision or conflict, a sacrifice might be an insurance policy. Human remains delivered to the gods ahead of time could help ensure a victory in battle or a bountiful harvest. According to early Greek and Roman texts, whether or not a culture practiced human sacrifice, the will of the gods was a factor in almost every decision the ancient Celts made. Without the deities on their side, any choice could result in a smiting from the beyond. Better sacrifice than sorry. Other remains from the British Iron Age that are suspected to be human sacrifices were discovered in positions similar to the Heslington brain. The skull of an ancient female victim was discovered face down on the edge of a river in Somerset, about 250 miles southwest from where Hez was found. Both faced their intended sacrificial destination, an otherworldly, watery realm. The pit archaeologists found the Heslington brain in wasn't a body of water. But as we mentioned, 
it was dug near a complex network of irrigation ditches and water storage. Hez might have been sacrificed to reinforce the health and effectiveness of their existing water system, or to ensure the success of a new construction. Of course, we'll never know for sure, but it's possible that the ritual that ended Hez's life played out something like this. The Celts captured Hez, either during an invasion or during a scouting expedition. As a potential foreigner, they kept him in confinement, away from the rest of the settlement. A prisoner. He was kept alone. Or, if the Celt settlement practiced human sacrifice often, he might have been kept with other prisoners and outsiders. Since archaeologists didn't find any other human remains on the site, it's likely that Hez was on his own. When the fateful day arrived, the Celts beat Hez, pulled him from confinement, and brought him before a crowd of observers. Most of the settlement would have gathered for the offering. A priest or a spiritual leader would have spoken a few words in honor of the gods and in blessing of their doomed sacrifice. Then, someone placed a noose around Hez's neck and hanged him until he was dead. Or until the rope broke. Either way, they went to great lengths to cut off his head. The rest of the story, as they say, is history. The Celts who sacrificed Hez thought they had special plans for him, but even they couldn't have predicted that their offering would become a marvel of science centuries later. We've traced Hez's life all the way to the moment of his death, but nothing in his presumptive history explains the central mystery of his remarkable brain, how and why did his fragile brain tissue survive thousands of years underground? As previously discussed, embalming was practiced in Iron Age Britain. Perhaps the Heslington brain was subjected to an experimental preservation technique that was unexpectedly effective. Human tissue has also been known to survive in specific natural circumstances, such as deep freezing, it's possible that the soil and other aspects of the natural environment in Heslington are the key to its unnatural survival. Research into the Heslington brain is ongoing. In January 2020, researchers published new findings suggesting that tightly folded proteins in the brain led to its preservation. And the strange processes that this brain may have undergone could mean revolutionary breakthroughs in a variety of scientific disciplines. In other words, Hez didn't die in vain. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday with part two of the Heslington Brain. For more information on the Heslington Brain, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Journal of Archaeological Science paper titled Exceptional Preservation of a Prehistoric Human Brain from Heslington, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. 
Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.